Hey y'all, this episode is brought to you by my new book, Find Your Rainbow. Find Your Rainbow is a full-color guide and activity book filled with interactive and positive ways for young readers to work through issues like self-esteem, positive thinking, and even bullying. I worked on this book for two to three years. It is filled with tons of colorful illustrations, my personal stories, and I think it will really help the girls in your life. You could find the book online, but really, I recommend going to your favorite independent bookstore and asking them for Find Your Rainbow. Thanks. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Rainy Day Diaries, an imperfect podcast that will dive headfirst into how you can thrive in your creative life and business, even if you struggle with mental wellness. I am your host, Jennifer Lynn, and as a longtime struggler of anxiety and depression myself, I hope this podcast will help you realize that you could still get stuff done when you deal with all these crazy things on a daily basis, that you're not alone, and that falling down does not mean you won't get back up again. I thank you so much for listening, and as always, if you have any suggestions or questions or topics you'd love to hear about, please email me at jenniferlynn at gmail.com. Thanks. Enjoy the show. So on this episode of Rainy Day Diaries, I am interviewing Taylor Lee, who is a painter and a mental health advocate. And I have to shout out one of our listeners, Christine, who is Pepper Vintage, because she's the one who told me about Taylor Lee and her, at the time you called them your bipolar paintings, which are super cool. And you're going on all these different adventures right now. So do you want to continue introducing yourself and talk about what you wanted to be growing up and what you're doing now? Yeah, great. And um, thanks for inviting me on the podcast. First of all, I'm really excited to be here. And also thanks to Christine for shouting me out. Um, I'm really glad she connected us. So um, I am a painter primarily. And recently I've been painting more florals than anything. And I'd like to probably stay on that path for a while. But um, I actually, when I was a kid, I thought that I was going to be... um, a drummer, a professional drummer. Really? <laughs> yeah. So in high school, I was in the marching band and I was on the drum line. I was the center snare, which not a lot of people know what that is, but like it's who Nick Cannon is in Drumline, the movie, <laughs> where he's basically like the guy that, um, you know, the center snare is kind of in charge of the drum line. And so when you hear a drum line coming and there's just the one drummer who kind of like, they hit the drum a couple times and it tells everyone like, we're about to start. That's so I, I was that person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I actually thought I would be a professional drummer that I would maybe play for the drum corps, which is a professional marching band. And then maybe I would start teaching camps um, to, you know, like when you go to band camp, sometimes they split you off depending on your section. And I thought maybe I'd end up teaching percussion. Well, this is very different than that. (laughs) Yeah, I am not um, doing that, clearly. I'm still in the arts, but instead I'm a painter, which was definitely a big surprise. For some reason, I thought that being a professional drummer was a lot more possible than being a professional painter. Huh. I mean, I guess perspective-wise, depending on who you talk to, maybe... Because you can always, like, work for someone else as a drummer, but you can't always work for someone else as being a painter. I think you're right. And I think with drumming, there's a lot more opportunity for teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, if anything, at at the end of the day, you can always go back to teaching. Whereas with being an artist, if, I mean, you can teach as well. But I think that there's more pressure to be successful um, 
as a professional before you teach. Whereas if you are just teaching band, I'm not sure that there's a whole lot of pressure to be a professional musician before you teach. I'll have to ask someone. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I guess I don't really know either now that I'm thinking harder about it. I have two friends in New York and they're both, mm -hmm. one plays in like a symphony, but she also teaches flute and one plays in a whole bunch of bands. And then he also teaches bass. Oh, that's cool. I kind of feel like they may, maybe depending on especially where you live, they can go hand in hand because I don't know if either mm -hmm. will give you all the income that you might necessarily want. <laughs> yes. But and it depends, I guess it also depends on like what you want to do. You know, you were mentioning a, symphon a symphony, but then there's also like soloists and there's, um, there's a lot of different levels. Well, when you said drummer, I immediately thought like, okay, you'd be in like you too, but like <laughs> you'd just be the drummer <laughs> in a band. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. That's totally like another thing, but I actually always was really bad at drum sets. Um, I was a lot better at just snare, just the one drum. <laughs> I totally get it because I can do beat. Like I love music and I'm musically inclined, but whenever I play a drum set, I would get especially because I was in a band for a little while, but I would get so distracted watching them. And then yeah. I would miss like all the other things I had to do besides just like the one thing I was doing. <laughs> oh yeah. I am terrible at like tapping my foot while doing something entirely different with hands. Yes. Oh my whereas gosh. When, <laughs> whereas when it was just like a marching band, you do have to walk in, um, you know, like in sync with everyone else while you're drumming. But it's just like a little bit different because the, pace of the walk is typically always going to be the same it's very consistent mm -hmm. whereas really good um coordination really really good drummers they like can do double bass and they can do like a lot of stuff with their feet and I just was I just am better at focusing on one thing <laughs> no I totally get it the drummer is always who I want to watch when I see bands play though because their hands go everywhere they look like oh. octopi like <laughs> I loved the movie Whiplash because I don't know what that is. About, it's this um, it's this movie. It won an, I think it won an Oscar, or it got nominated a couple years ago for an Oscar. And it's got Miles Teller, and um, oh, I'm blanking on the other guy's name, J.K. Simmons. Yeah, and, he's in everything. Um, <laughs> he's in everything, but he's great. Basically, it's a story about this kid who wants to be a professional jazz drum set player, and he is at this very difficult school and he gets into the very like the top band there, but the instructor is really hard on him and it's very like, it's so tense, but it's a great movie. Okay. I'll have to look that up. Yeah. <laughs> so do you, I know your story is pretty interesting. Do you want to talk more about how you went from drumming into what you're doing now painting? <laughs> well, I actually, um, um, I actually ended up dropping out of band in high school because, um, like I said, I was center snare, so I was in charge and I was not very good at being in charge. Like I had the skill level to lead people and to teach others on the drum line. Like my music professor, or I guess in high school, it's not a professor, but my teacher, he was able to kind of walk away from us and go help other people in the band and let me kind of help people on the drum line figure out what their parts were. 
So like I say, I was really bad at multitasking, but I was decent at like tenors, which is the, the drums, like the four or five set um, that is in the marching band as well. And bass drum and all that stuff. I was pretty good at that. And I was good at teaching others how to like, to help them with their parts. But I wasn't very good as like a, a leader on the like, social side of things. I was very awkward. I didn't have a lot of friends. I was kind of an odd like outcast and I wasn't very popular and I just didn't know how to like be in charge of people or how to um yeah I guess I just didn't know how to lead and so I felt a lot of pressure and it started taking away from enjoying the drumline and so I ended up quitting. And that was something I really regretted for a while because it made me feel like I was a failure and that I had like chosen to quit instead of overcome my challenge or whatever. That's something that I'm really hard on myself even to this day about is I don't like to quit things. I really, I feel like I'm really hard on myself when I quit, but um, it turned out to actually be a really good decision because you still had to take an elective. And so I started taking art classes instead of band. And that turns out to be what I'm doing now. So, like, <laughs> you know, it was one of those things that was kind of a struggle for me and it made me kind of sad um, for a while, but it actually worked out really well in the end. It's like, it was almost meant to be. <laughs> no, it was meant to be. Mm -hmm. So I, I was similar in high school. I didn't have a lot of friends. I definitely wasn't popular. Um, <laughs> and, but I couldn't get into school at all, not even art class. And so I'm curious what feeling like an outsider in art class did for you. Cause I know a lot of people thrived in their high school art class and maybe that's what they're doing now. I don't know. Um, but to me, I, I couldn't even focus on that. Like I was just so miserable everywhere in school. Yeah, I definitely, I felt pretty miserable a lot in high school as well. And I, um, I had like a lot of different things going on at the time that I didn't understand. Like I, um, in middle school, I started skipping meals for the first time. And that was the first like appearance of what later became anorexia. <laughs> okay. Um, so that was going on for me still in high school. And then also I felt really depressed. Um, I remember when I was 16, I realized that I was different than everybody else. And I could like look around and I wasn't just, to me, it was no longer like, oh, I'm just not popular. I was thinking there's something off <laughs> with me. Um, why is everyone else acting a way that I just can't even imagine acting. So anyway, I, um, I did some Googling, which back then was probably more like Ask Jeeves. <laughs> ask some Jeevesing. Uh, ask Jeevesing. Yeah, this was like 2005 or six. So it was probably Google, I don't think was a big deal back then. But anyway, um, I was like poking around in the internet and I found the Beck depression inventory. And that's what I took. I like took the little quiz myself and it told me that I was scoring in the high thirties, which on that test meant that you had major depressive disorder. Okay. So I kind of like self-diagnosed. And even though when I told my parents about that, they didn't really do anything. And that's, you know, that's a whole other story is that I, 
asked for help and didn't get it, at least like that inventory kind of gave me some like answers or it gave me some idea of the fact that there might really be something going on and that even though I didn't know what to do about it, it was an answer and that was in some way relieving. So I just kind of felt all throughout high school, like the, especially the rest of high school after I discovered what, you know, I discovered the definition of depression on, on online and like looked at the symptoms and kind of self-diagnosed. After that, I spent a lot of time just being really introspective and thinking about what that meant and how I felt about things. And I've always been like really, really introspective. <laughs> so I liked art class because it gave me the opportunity to practice that, um, to kind of like visually depict the things I was thinking about. So I remember this project that I did in art class where um, it was the first piece of art that I made that I was ever proud of. And it was supposed to be a self-portrait. But what I did was I drew this face and it had like a mask and the mask was kind of like coming off and the mask looks like a normal face. And underneath the mask was like all of this stuff that I felt like was symbolic. I had like flames and like, <laughs> I don't even remember all of what I put in there, but I, I think I put like song lyrics in there and like fallout boy song lyrics to be sure. Right. <laughs> and, um, so anyway, I just remember doing a lot of that kind of stuff in art class. So you took this art class and it kind of like opened your world up. And it sounds like you were really good at expressing yourself through art already if you drew like that cool mask thing. So then what did your life look like after that? Like you were going to have a future in drumming and now what? <laughs> um, well, I decided to go to UNC Chapel Hill and I wasn't, I knew I wasn't going to pursue drumming, but I did not think I was going to be an artist. So I just chose a place that was a good school and I knew I was going to go and find my major along the way. <laughs> and I, um, so I went there and I ended up choosing a major in English Lit. So yet another humanity that I like am not actually doing now, but I guess I just like art in general <laughs> and like the arts, but um, I, once I got to college, college was so hard for me because that was really when I saw the peak of my mental health problems start kind of appearing. Um, so it was in my junior year or right before my junior year around 2012 when I was kind of at the height of my eating disorder. And at the time, I just was thinking it's this one thing that I'm dealing with. But obviously, in retrospect, I know I was dealing with a lot more than just that. But the eating disorder felt more like um, more prominent because it was such a physical manifestation. You know, sometimes depression and anxiety, it just it feels so in your head. But an eating disorder, you can really see the physical effects, too. So um, I got really derailed in college because of that. And so at this time in my life, I still wasn't really pursuing the career that I have now. I kind of got, I just really stumbled over this like period of time. You started noticing your eating disorder when you were 16, you said, or so you had one for quite a while. I started yeah, I started noticing it in middle school, 
because I would be really nervous about eating in front of other people. And so because of the social anxiety, I would just skip lunch. And that's how it started for me. And then uh, by high school, I realized that I was like, I wanted to be skinnier. And so I was skipping lunch for that reason too. And then by high, by college, um, a whole lot, there's so much complexity that goes into an eating disorder. So it's never just, oh, I want to be skinny or I'm nervous. And there was so much else kind of packed into it. That's one of those things that can really snowball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mine was like, you're not worth spending money on food mm-hmm. type of thing. So like, I'm like, it was like, you don't deserve to go to the grocery store. So you will eat two almonds today. Like it was really messed up. <laughs> oh. Wow. Yeah, that's tough. Um, so then I lost my train of thought. I'm seeing an actual train now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so going backwards just a tiny bit before we go forward, I know you said you asked your parents for help. So did they just kind of brush you off? Like, I'm curious how that kind of works. Cause I know in my perspective, I, I a therapist told me this once. Um, and she wasn't even a very good therapist, but this makes sense. I remember the first time I asked for my parents for help with my depression. And I, I remember how I did it. I remember where I put the note, like, and my mom remembers it completely different. She's like, no, I found this in your room and I saw your diary. And like, there's, it's like so different. And the therapist is like, oh, that's how she wants to remember it. Her rescuing you instead of you asking for help type thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, like, yeah, how that went for you. Well, eventually, I hope (laughs) uh, it was, it was not the best. So like when I asked for help that day, I remember, um, I had taken that online, like Beck depression inventory. And I basically asked my mom to come to my room because I wanted to show her the results. I had like printed out the little paper and I was like, I took this thing online and it says that I am in this category, which means major depressive disorder and just kind of like look at her and she just like I just really don't remember her saying anything and I don't know whether that's just like me kind of brushing it over but I don't remember her saying much like I I mostly just think about her backing out of the room and just not knowing what to say so not saying anything and we just never talked about it And like, um, I remember I read that situation as a no, this is a no, because that's how my parents were when I would ask for a sleepover or want to go to a party or whatever. It was like the, my parents always used silence as no, because they were really uncomfortable saying no. Interesting. Yeah. My parents were not the type who would say like, they would never say definitive no's. It would always be, I'll sleep on it, or it would just be silence. And you just had to kind of connect the dots for yourself. That's complicated for a young person. <laughs> it is. It was really tough um, to like understand how to function in relationships after that, because it was modeled for me at an early age to just like assume that people know what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not how things work (laughs) so um I didn't 
So um, the next time that it really came up at all was when I was in college and it was 2012 and my sister, she was graduating with her master's. It was May actually. It was probably almost like a year or not a year ago. Like I'm saying since it's, (laughs) I'm saying since it's May right now, like it was also May back then. And, um, she was graduating and we were out all day celebrating with her and I just didn't really eat anything. And I passed out and they took me to the emergency room because at this time, May, 2012, I was fainting constantly because I was really like in the throes of anorexia, very malnourished. And, um, my, when we went to the doctor, the doctor just said oh I think it's dehydration and I think at that time I was still a little bit in denial myself so I was thinking oh well you know what if what if it's like diabetes or something (laughs) just just not the same but um and no one really like was admitting what was happening or if anyone was aware of it nobody was saying it and then the next morning my mom had bought a bunch of snacks to like replenish me a lot of juice boxes like you know you're going to stay on the couch today you went to the ER last night you're going to recover today and she tells me that she knew I had an eating disorder when I walked over to the table and picked up the juice box package and turned it around to look at the calories and so um but even then I don't think she really said anything to me even though she says like that's what she knew I don't remember her confronting me. I kind of came to the conclusion myself differently within a couple months. And then once I talked to her about it, she was saying, oh, yeah, I noticed this, too. And then I went to um, an inpatient treatment facility in June that year. So it was kind of, again, like no real confronting each other with the truth, but kind of rewriting it like in retrospect. That's so interesting. Yeah. I always, like, I definitely don't think my parents don't care about me. Like, I didn't know my parents care about me. But for me and my mental health journey, it's always been about me recognizing when I need help and me not stopping until I find someone who listens. I haven't really felt like I've been rescued by anybody or um, anybody is, like, pointed things out to me that I didn't know. I think it it always came down to me having to ask for the help myself and finding it. That makes, I mean, you're a really strong person because it takes like a lot of strength (laughs) to ask for help. So yeah, I just got, I remember um, the main reason I asked for help and started going to the inpatient facility was because I was really, really scared. And I think that my fear outweighed any other denial I was in because I was just, I was passing out all the time. I was finding myself waking up in the middle of the night, unable to move and like being terrified. And my roommates had moved out and I just felt really, really alone and really, really scared. And I was really, I almost like begged to be impatient because I just wanted somebody who would watch over me at night. Cause I felt like I couldn't let down my guard and I was so scared. I just wanted to be someplace where I could just sleep at night and know that someone was watching out for me. That's interesting. So how long were you there for? 
I was there for three months. So when you signed up, did you sign yourself up for three months or that's just, I'm assuming they don't with like a rehabilitation type place. Is there like a set schedule or they just, you leave when you're ready to leave? I think that with, with those kinds of facilities, they have an idea of what you might need depending on the severity of your situation, because in those facilities, it's not just about the mental reworking, but you also are like physically gaining weight. Mm -hmm. So they have to have an idea of about how much time it takes you to gain weight. (laughs) And, um, but then it's complex because you also have to factor in what insurance is willing to pay for. So some people have to leave sooner than they're ready because insurance kicks them out basically. And, um, so we had like a general idea that it could be three to six months and that we would hope that either I would get better, I would get better before insurance kicked me out basically. That seems and, so um, <laughs> I know it's awful because insurance, I don't know how much it's changed in the past like seven or so years. Um, since I was dealing directly with that kind of thing, but they, I know specifically for eating disorders, you had to weigh a certain amount in order to be considered unhealthy. They used your like BMI to gauge whether you were healthy or not. And I know that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, Oh my gosh. That's not quite how it goes. Like people who, um, People who have eating problems weigh all kinds of weights. Yeah, you don't have to be like completely emaciated. <laughs> yeah, to have an issue. Interesting. Yeah. And everyone so, knew that. Yeah, yeah. So they have like an idea when you go into a place like that. Um, based on my experience, they have an idea of when they think you'll leave, but you don't set an actual date until you're a little closer to like either recovering or they realize that your insurance is only going to cover. Um, I mean, it's kind of messed up because you might come in and insurance is covering you and then you're getting better and you're gaining weight. And then all of a sudden you've passed that um, requirement for insurance to cover you and the insurance says, Oh, well you, you weigh this much now. So that means you're healthy enough to leave. And that's not always true either because you just, because your body might've gained weight back doesn't mean that you're mentally able to retain that once you leave. My heart hurts. Yeah. It's really awful. I got lucky. I had a good experience, but I know when I was there, I saw a lot of people leave before they needed to. And it ends up making people have to come back for multiple stints, you know? Hey, 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 hey. Okay, (laughs) but on the bright side, uh, (laughs) you art there. (laughs) I did. (laughs) Yeah, we had an art therapy group, which was really cool, and that was the first time that I had ever made anything that was kind of like abstract expressionist, where it's just purely for the sake of expressing your feelings and um, purely for therapeutic things. Like I know what I create now isn't always purely therapeutic because it's my job at this point and I can't, I can't rely on the muse to come visit me because it's too inconsistent and I'm running a business. So I don't really paint super like emotionally all the time. 
but it was the first time I interacted with that was through art therapy at this inpatient facility. So I'm curious when you're going through something so, so hard, was it hard to let go to paint or were you kind of just at your end and then it was easy to like be creative? Cause I find it's easier to be creative when I'm going through something, mm-hmm. but then every blue moon, that little, like you're doing it wrong or like, it's not good enough. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what my question no. is. <laughs> I, I kind of understand what you're saying, though, because I, um, when I was at UNC, I studied creative writing, and I wrote a lot of poetry. And poetry is something I'm working on getting back into, because I really love it, but I, what I've struggled with is I always felt like I was a better poet or more inspired when I was unhappy. Mm-hmm, me too. And, <laughs> and then, like, once I got happier, I didn't know what to write about, because <laughs> it just seems like... I don't know. I don't really find poems about happiness to be very moving. Um, so I just, I don't know if I haven't, I just haven't found the right poems. But anyway, I, um, so I kind of have felt that way about art as well, especially in art therapy, where sometimes you do have the little voice that's overly critical. And when I first started, um, painting in art therapy and patient, you know, I'm there for three months. And so within the first month, I for sure was telling myself the story of how I'm a good artist. I'm a talented artist. I want to impress the people who are here. Cause I, a big thing for me is I love approval. I always want everyone to tell me how great I am all the time. I like really, like really want that and crave that. <laughs> so I found it really hard to let go of expectations of what something should look like because for me art was about impressing others instead of the process itself or expressing myself and um, even in times when I've been able to create something expressive and then get positive feedback from it it makes it so much harder to paint the next time (laughs) Interesting. and so yeah it's just I definitely do the dance with it where I I'm not, I don't ever feel free of the critic, but I don't always feel the critic either. Um, And I don't like perpetuating the myth that you have to be unhealthy to make good art because that's harmful too. And that's not entirely true. No, which is why I'm, yeah, yeah. So why I'm trying to find my way back to poetry because I told myself that about poetry for so long. And then I, seem to overcome it with painting and now I'm thinking why not overcome it with poetry <laughs> like <True>. go back <laughs> go back and get the the soldier you like lost and abandoned <laughs> so do you feel that those critics affect you now too while you're painting or do you get to a certain point where you're comfortable with your style enough that you're not constantly feeling it I definitely um I can be hard on myself sometimes and so I have developed a system of like what I call cycles And the cycles help me give room for the criticism and also have times where I'm not critical. So, for instance, I mean, the the cycle can last over the course of weeks or months, but just for the sake of saying, like, a nice, clear timeline, I might spend one month letting myself just be inspired. And that's just watch what I want on TV, visit gardens listen to music, just get inspired, just like soak up things, um, 
Pinterest a lot. <laughs> and then the next month will be all about experimentation, which is trying to take everything that inspired me and like make something with it. But I tell myself, this is an experiment. It's okay if things suck and they are likely going to suck. So that's really like where I let the critical voice just run wild, you know, um, because I'm always able to tell myself, yeah, it does suck, but it was an experiment. So it's okay. Oh, I have to learn that. That's yeah. So good. Yeah. So then by the time you get to the third and final phase of the cycle, it, which is just execution, which is like at some point in the experimentation phase, you found something that worked really well. And then you just do that for the final phase. Um, it allows you to like spend the first part of your creative process, just getting inspired and feeling happy. And then the last part of your creative process, feeling happy with what you're making and confident and then letting yourself have like that little window of time in the middle where it's going to get a little bit critical. Cause I just don't think we can ever really rid ourselves of a critic. But you're, you know, spending one third of the time being critical instead of 100% of the time, if that makes sense. No, that's so good. Um, so then, did you teach yourself that? Like, is that just something that came to you? Or was that, did you learn that from somewhere? It kind of came to me from um, a combination of things. One being the fact that I have bipolar disorder. So I naturally go through cycles in my life. So to me, cycles are very natural, you know, like I have my ups and I have my downs. And so it made sense for me to kind of make my creative process have a cycle too. And then also I heard a quote somewhere that really spoke to me and I can't remember where it's from, but it was something about how there's a difference between like working on something and solving the problem and just executing. I think that it might've been from the creative pep talk podcast where Andy J pizza was talking about um, like when you have a job and you need to just do the job. So if you have someone like a client who's commissioned you to do something and you're doing that project, that is not the time to rethink your style or to like, try and become a different painter or like whatever this is a job you have to do during this time frame and you can save your experimentation and your developments and stuff for later <laughs> so i think i heard him mention that concept and that really stuck with me as thinking about the difference between allowing yourself to like be open to questioning and having doubts and trying new things versus those phases where you're really confident and you just really have to put on the blinders and like focus on the one thing. That's really interesting. Um, so then did you know growing up you had bipolar disorder or did that come about later in life, the more you were like exploring yourself? I did not know. Um, I got my diagnosis for bipolar disorder either I think it was 2018 or late 2017. It was kind of recent. Mm -hmm. It was definitely, it's definitely been at least a year. And once I got the diagnosis, it made a ton of sense. <laughs> um, up until that point, there were like a, a bunch of hypotheses that through, I worked with a lot of different therapists because I wasn't finding any particular one that I really connected with or something. So I kind of jumped around between therapists for a while. 
Whereas the therapist I currently have is the therapist I've been with for the longest amount of time, which has been a year. <laughs> and um, so going through all of these different therapists, like different ones had different opinions about what I was experiencing. So my first therapist, she just said I had a mood disorder. She didn't like say exactly what it was. It's kind of like saying you have an eating disorder yeah. but not talking about whether it's anorexia or, bi um, or bulimia or not otherwise specified. And um, so, yeah, she just said I had a mood disorder. And then a different therapist told me that I had borderline personality disorder, which is actually very, very similar to bipolar in some ways. So I think by then we were noticing that I tend to have ups and downs and like mood swings. And then um, I've also dealt with panic disorder a lot. And so that kind of was the, um, the thing I paid the most attention to for a long time because that can be really debilitating. It can make you agoraphobic, which it has. <laughs> and it can like really make your life so small because you're so scared scared of like going outside of your comfort zone so for a long time I focused on just anxiety and kind of completely like threw off thinking about depression and it was just kind of like I was exploring all these different things that had some truths some maybe didn't some weren't some were more vague than others and um I just like I had this therapist who just brought up bipolar one day and we started reading more about it and I started drawing the similarities and we decided like, actually, I think that's the thing. <laughs> um, so then I know you said you have up and down ups and downs. So what does bipolar disorder kind of look like for you specifically? Well, for me, I, I don't know if everyone who has bipolar feels this way, but I thankfully spend way more time on the like mania side of it than I do the depressive side. And so um, by bipolar disorder, you shift on the spectrum between mania and depression. Depression, of course, being very like, for me, depression is very numb. I feel very nihilistic when I'm depressed. I feel, I like isolate a lot more. I don't, I don't get any enjoyment out of anything. It's awful. <laughs> and then the manic side, it can go extreme where you, um, and I have been on the extremes where I've done really bad things like had promiscuous sexual behavior, um, been like addicted to spending money and just blew out like $20,000 in credit card debt. <laughs> um, so, you know, mania can get pretty wild, too. It's not all fun and games. And there's just, like, a euphoric sense of being untouchable when you're manic. And so you kind of do a lot of stupid things. Interesting. And um, I think that there's actually kind of a numbness in mania, too. And so, but you just do, you handle it a different way. When I'm depressed and I feel numb, I just feel like everything's pointless. And when I'm manic, it's almost like I'm trying to find ways to not feel numb and I'm distracting myself. So I'm buying things and I'm, you know, like being outgoing and talking to people and just trying to fill my days up with anything <laughs> so that I don't have to think. Um, but I typically spend more time below that point 
more like on the high ends, but just excited, energized, can't sit still, got to do something with this energy. And thankfully, I found painting as a way to spend my time because there was a time period where I did not have very much to do with myself. And it was, you know, I ended up with $20,000 in credit card debt. <laughs> Good golly. <laughs> yes. So I remember you talking about the panic disorder on your stories. Like you were going to buy paint, like a tube of paint, and you did a few. You talked about that, I don't for a little while, like consistently. Um, yeah. Has that lessened since you've been in therapy or I'm not, or no, figure it out. I guess if you've been, you've diagnosed, you've been bipolar, you've known about, that was going on during the diagnosis, but how have you kind of conquered that or have you? It's gotten so much better. It has gotten so much better. The reason I don't share like talking myself down as much anymore is because I don't actually have to as much. So I'm clapping. That's awesome. Yes. (laughs) It is such a relief because for so long it felt like I mean, I got I got very suicidal feeling during the height of my panic disorder because I was just thinking, what is the point? I'm either numb and feel awful or I'm too scared to leave the house. And there's I just felt so frustrated with life because you know, that's just not a great way to live. But I feel a lot better. It's been definitely due to therapy. So, um my the theory that my therapist and I are kind of operating off of is that I have a lot of trauma that I never dealt with because as we kind of discussed when I was a kid I grew up in a house that just was silent (laughs) and we didn't ever talk about things we didn't like process things it was just swept right under the rug but my therapist says you know nothing is truly swept away under the rug it's still there and he was believe he believed that a lot of these undealt with things were causing me just like a lot of anxiety and that it was just bubbling up and getting more intense and punctuated. So we, um, we had to like kind of pull out that, all that stuff from out from under the rug and get it out there and start sorting through it and working through it and uh, processing things. And so now that I've gotten a little clearer on some of that stuff, I feel a lot lighter. I just feel like a weight is off of me. I feel more like capable of handling things because these things that I didn't handle for so long, I'm finally handling. So it's almost like, you know, my plate was just too full or something. Mm -hmm. And also I've learned a lot of really good techniques. Like, you know, there is, there's not enough I can say about learning your breathing techniques and your um, learning your DBT techniques where like, uh, you know, panic disorder uses a lot of catastrophizing thought processes. Like, um, you know, what's the worst that can happen and your mind goes there. Being able to train myself to walk back those thoughts and challenge them and think, um, just like make up different thought patterns instead of the same old ones that has been really helpful too. So the combination of really practical strategies as well as kind of trying to like clean out the closet, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that kind of thing has been so helpful for me. I was like you, I tried on a lot of different therapists and I finally stayed with one for a little while and I didn't think she was perfect by any means. 
like mm-hmm. she was very like woo-woo-y like she wanted me to be um, a tree and stuff which isn't which is fine but that's it's not, not like that's not how I feel about things either <laughs> yeah um and and then she broke up with me like oh, no. after like after like I think we were working together for like five or six months and she like so we were sitting down and she was expensive I was giving her like $80 a session and I was like mm-hmm. 20 four years old. It's not like I had like, you know, tons of money. <laughs> I can't even afford a yeah. session now, but she's like, therapists are like shoes and sometimes they just aren't the right fit. And I'm like, okay, okay, here's your $80. And then I came like one more time and I'm just like, I don't know what to do. Like, <laughs> oh my God, my sister's therapist also broke up with her and after I heard about that, I went to my therapist that I have now and was basically like, I have not ever opened up to anyone in the way that I've opened up to you. You better not break up with me. Like basically was like, are you planning? Are you thinking we're not a good fit? Like really confronted him and was like, I need to know like a year in advance. (laughs) That's so scary because you know, you spend so much time looking for a good therapist and you put in a lot of work. I know. It's ridiculous. And it's like a trust thing. To, it's so hard because it's so expensive and yes. hard to find a good therapist. You're spending all this money trying to see if you fit. Like, it's not like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I ended up not looking for one anymore because I looked for one I was here and I'm like, I don't like her either. And I have a pretty good sense of like, not that I don't like a lot of people, but I'm just like, I know intuitively if like I want to be around someone yeah and my husband's like you're being too harsh like you're going through hard stuff like just give her a try and I'm like so I went like four more times and I'm like I don't like this like and I haven't found a therapist (sighs) since like (laughs) the big thing that I um the big thing that the change that I made that got me to meet the therapist that I have now which I really like is I used to see licensed clinical social workers and I purposely sought out someone who was a psychotherapist and I didn't really understand the difference between them um, up until this point and until I started doing a little more research and I I found that that the psychotherapist angle I think that's really helpful and also I used to only see women and I switched to a man and I don't I also don't know if that made a huge difference at the end of the day. And it's been tough because I do have a a history of sexual assault. And so I have like a, I definitely have a bias where I'm still a little bit afraid around men. Um, So it's been kind of hard in some topics to work through that and still feel safe. Sometimes I just have to say, I don't want to do that. You're a man and I don't feel, I don't feel safe talking about this with you. But I hope we get there because um, the relationship has worked out a lot better than some of my other therapists. It's interesting because I was recording an episode about my eating disorder and I couldn't finish it. I think because the baby woke up. But or I, anyways, but it was the two women. So the I don't remember where I found these people, but the the nutritionist I found to help with me through my eating disorder was like gorgeous. And like tall with beautiful hair and never had an eating disorder. So I like resented her. She was expensive too. So I would like give her a bunch of money and then feel bad about myself in my visit with her. 
Uh-huh. And then she recommended us that counselor who is also gorgeous, <laughs> who also never had an eating disorder and was never been depressed. And then I resented her. And then I'm like, I have to break up with all these people. <laughs> they all make me feel horrible. <laughs> I also had a really good looking nutritionist. Like, I don't know what it is. But yeah, I, I remember um, my nutritionist, her name, she also had a really beautiful name, like Anya or something, like a really, she had like, Europe, she was European and her name was Anya and she was just like, just so gorgeous and intimidating to be around. <laughs> it's hard. I think all nutritionists and people who help with, well, I kind of feel like, and maybe this is a bias, but I feel like if you're helping, maybe not, because then every counselor has to have all the issues you have. But I feel like nutritionists that work with eating disorders, maybe it would be helpful if they've had one. I don't know. Maybe not. (laughs) No, I definitely, I enjoy when someone can relate to me and it doesn't seem like you can always relate if you haven't been through the same thing. Mm -hmm. No. Um, Yeah. (laughs) yeah so like with my my current therapist I made sure that he had the same views as I do like the same views about religion and um things like that because I deal with a lot of existential angst (laughs) I feel very like nihilistic a lot of times like nothing matters we're all just going to die eventually I feel a lot of that kind of hopeless stuff and um I really wanted to be with a therapist who like understood that kind of philosophy so it just wasn't going to be this person who was going to try to convince me to like believe in what they believed in or you know something like that I wanted to make sure we had the same at least views on a lot of things can they do that that's not ethical right if they're like oh Jesus will help you no that is not ethical no But I do know in my research, I don't know if it's just because I'm in the South, but I found so many therapists who specifically were like, we are a Christian therapist. We use the Bible in our sessions, blah, blah, blah. And I was very surprised to see that. I went to one Christian therapist because he was sliding scale and I could like, he was like, tell me how much you can pay me. And I'm like, I'll give you $20. He's like, okay, coming on Monday. And I'm like, okay. But then I had to separate, like, then you, I, I felt like I was hiding in this shell because I'm yeah. like, I'm specifically going to someone specifically, but he's so nice. And I, and so is his, like the people in his office, but like half his techniques or half the things he was saying to me, I couldn't do, you know? Yes, exactly. And I feel like when you're dealing with something like depression, um, you really need to be able to be open about how you're feeling about something. And I need a therapist who I can say to, I don't believe that there's an afterlife. So that depresses me. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, I don't need you to convince me that there is one in order to, you know, fix me. But I do need you to understand and not criticize me or make me feel like I have to hide how I really feel about it because I'm not going to get, I'm not going to find peace if I am just like censoring myself in therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's essentially what therapy isn't supposed to be. Like it's supposed to be freeing, not hindering. Yes, exactly. But it's so hard to find a therapist. I think they should pay us to be clients. Or the therapist. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious how long you've been married for and if you met him in like 
what he's, because I know he was in the car driving you when you were going to the paint store. So I'm curious how he's been helpful or like how you navigate all those things communication wise. Yeah, John is amazing. Um, We met through mutual friends about five years ago or something. And um, we were, I mean, I immediately just really liked him as a friend because he is extremely like easygoing. He's a very hard, it's very hard to upset him. He's not high strong he's not got um even if he has like a really specific opinion about something he doesn't feel the need to like scream his opinion at everybody (laughs) he's just extremely calming to be around if you understand Enneagram he's like a type nine which is like the most easygoing type (laughs) but anyway he's kind of like do you watch Parks and Rec yes but I have I've only seen up to like season four Oh, that's fine. Yeah. He's kind of like Andy from Parks and Rec where he's not, now he's not as like goofy as that character is, but he's very, he's just easygoing. And I'm a lot like April where April is very like kind of suspicious of everyone, kind of like, you know, misanthropic sometimes and is like stubborn and doesn't want to do things. And Andy is just like, okay, (laughs) (laughs) okay, it's fine. Um, so yeah, John has been really helpful throughout this experience, um, of like trying to get a handle on my mental illness because he is not only very intelligent and therefore able to do his own research and understand what's happening and like that kind of stuff, but he's also, um, super, super patient with me if we're in the car and I'm having an anxiety attack and it seems like a situation in which someone else might judge me for having anxiety attack. He has never judged me. He's never made me feel as if I am being stupid or silly or illogical. Um, we sometimes have, we have our fights. Everybody has their fights and our fights have come mostly from the fact that he is less emotional of a person than I am. We've, we've actually joked before that he's a little bit of a sociopath which is just someone who doesn't feel things emotionally and um, is just, you know, governed by logic. And I am actually a pretty logical person myself, but I tend to, you know, have the extremes of anxiety and depression. So I don't really, I mean, I guess that's considered emotion. I just find it hard to describe because I'm a rational person who feels irrational things. And That's I feel a like perfect way of thinking of saying it. Yeah, like people always try to make it seem like you have to be one or the other. <laughs> no, I'm definitely both too. So yeah. People want to put people in boxes. So they're like, Yes. I've been argued like, no, you're an extrovert because of X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, that's not what an extrovert means. Like yeah. I am both of these things. Like <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We really like to have a definition. <laughs> yeah. And um I I do feel like he feels a little bit easier to define than I feel like I'm easy, that I'm, you know, I don't feel like I'm as easy to define, I guess is what I'm saying. But no, he's extremely patient and understanding and supportive and kind. And even when we disagree, he listens and tries to understand. And that is just so great because again, like I said, I grew up in a house that was very (laughs) anti-talking. So I 
when I was looking for a relationship, I really wanted someone who I could trust and who I could talk to about anything and would never have to hide anything from. And he is exactly those things. That's what everyone should strive to have. Like those are all really important Mm -hmm. things. Like (laughs) I grew up in a family where sensitivity like was weakness and like be brave, put on a happy face, be optimistic. Like when I was pregnant, it was like some of the worst anxiety of my entire life. Like it was Mm. just, I got off my medication and I got pregnant like three days later and all those chemicals did something really nasty to me. And my mom's like, you should be grateful because there's so many women who want to be pregnant. And I'm like, I am grateful, but I'm also all these things and I'm allowed to be all these things. Like I have no control over these things. Like (laughs) you can, you can be all of it. You know, you can be a contradiction. (laughs) Yeah. My family's very critical. I'm really grateful that John has grown. We've both grown toward each other because I used to be a lot more out of control. Whereas I have been able to kind of pull the control back. I'm not so um, susceptible to my mood swings as I used to be. Like I used to just kind of just go nuts. And (laughs) I've been able to like really practice and train myself to be a lot more like cool headed. And um, he used to be a lot colder, a lot less like, uh, you know, if he didn't understand something, he would just assume that it was like something he should just brush off and forget. And he's had to do some work toward saying, okay, just because I don't understand it doesn't mean it's not valid. And so we've kind of grown toward each other in that way. And I think that's probably like what anyone should hope for in a relationship. People who can grow toward each other instead of like one or the other has to make all the sacrifice. Exactly. No, I mean, essentially we want partners. Like we have to get rid of a lot of the, I don't know. There's a lot of issues whether the man and the woman should be in a relationship. So I want to erase all of them. Like, (laughs) Oh, absolutely. (laughs) So you left um, the rehabilitation place like six years ago, I think. Mm -hmm. And then did you continue seven? And then did you continue painting after that? Because when I found you, it wasn't that long ago. It was like last year. So Mm -hmm. I know you found out about your diagnosis by polar syndrome last year but like what were you painting before that and then what were like how does it kind of I don't know what the word is <laughs> how do we get to here <laughs> I'm just waving my hands around and hoping she knows what I'm saying <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I was not actually I was not painting for very much for that time in between um uh, Carolina House which is the name of the facility and now so I, um, I used to do creative things just like pretty much after I left Carolina house, I lost my biggest coping mechanism for every, all my pain, which was my eating disorder. (laughs) And so since I no longer had the eating disorder to focus on, I kind of bounced in the opposite direction. So instead of extreme control, um, cause I was anorexic, so it was very much about control and like restriction. I kind of bounced in the other direction. I started doing a lot of drugs um, and I would do creative things while I was high. I really liked doing that, but that was kind of the only time I was doing it. So again, I kind of continued that story of telling myself that I couldn't create things unless I was in pain or whether I was inebriated. It was just like, 
uh, it was almost like I, I just didn't feel like I was in control of my creativity that I just like was a vessel for it whenever it chose to show up or that I had to like turn off my brain in order to um, do it or something. And so as I got healthier and stopped doing drugs and then I wasn't in so much pain anymore either, I kind of like didn't really know where art fit into my life. It's like, well, if I'm not using it to numb myself, then what's it for? <laughs> and, um, so I just, I would find myself coming back to it every now and then if I heard like a new, like a, like an album that I loved. Like there was this one time I listened to a Tegan and Sarah album. It was like their new one. And I was so excited and it just, the music filled me up and inspired me. And I just got it, dug out some paints and painted. And it was very shocking to me. I was like, I don't know why I'm doing this right now, but I'm going with it. I'm just going to roll with it. And um, I decided to try and like get better at it because I wanted to spend, spend time doing healthy things. Cause like, you know, okay. So life without an eating disorder and without drugs felt really empty to me. <laughs> I like didn't know what to do with myself. And then on top of that, at the time I didn't understand that I was bipolar. And so when you are feeling more manic, you do have kind of a superhuman amount of energy. You don't sleep as much as normal people. You don't even want to eat as much. Like it, it's just been a lot to deal with <laughs> and I didn't really have an outlet for it. So I just start, I decided to start trying to like take some classes with art. So I looked up online workshops, not formal classes, just like finding artists who were teaching online. And that's when I started really like picking it back up and focusing on working on it as a skill rather than just like a booty call. <laughs> yeah, like actually practicing it and dedicating time to it and really working on it even when I didn't feel like it and working on it when I didn't feel like I had the pain or the inebriation back it up because now you know I don't have an eating disorder anymore and I also I've been sober for many years and so I just like kind of had to reacquaint myself with art and figure out what it meant for me now as opposed to what it used to be mm -hmm. no that's smart like mm -hmm. shifting what it means to you mm-hmm so did I catch you like when you started getting back into it more full time then? Like I started, ago? I started painting full time um, in 2017. Okay. So I started it up in like 2016 and then I discovered on Instagram, a lot of artists who were doing it as like their full time thing. And I was, it was like the first time that I saw that it was possible and it wasn't so like unreachable. I was like, Oh, that person they live in South Carolina and they're doing this. And that person, they live in New Jersey and they're doing this. Like, why not me? And so 2017 is when I became an official LLC. And um, I've been building my business ever since. That's so exciting. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I'm really lucky. Well, also not lucky because I worked really hard to get here and I don't like talking it up to luck. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. I get it. Yeah, I'm grateful. <laughs> So then who, what classes did you take online? Like who inspired you to sign up for their classes? The, the person who inspired me the most was Tara Lever. Her last name is spelled like 
you leave the room, leave her. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, don't know like, who that is. She's um, she's a an artist in the UK. I think she used to live in Cornwall, but I don't know where she is now. I think she might have moved or something. But anyway, UK, and she does an amazing blog, and the blog is all about so many different topics. She has very specific tutorials, and then she has just kind of like art philosophy, like how she thinks about certain topics and all just really good for the soul. And she has a really active Pinterest account because she has, you know, all these links to her blog. And so you can find her on Pinterest as well. And she teaches workshops. And the first workshop I took from her was called Abstractify. And it was about like how to make abstract work using uh, like a, something in reality as your reference. That's interesting. Yeah, which is kind of what I do now, where I don't do realism, but I do use, like, actual references, and then I try and, like, put my own spin on it. I, I That really started from me taking her class. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. So that was in 2016. 17, 16 or 17. Okay. It was, like, the fall of 2016 or early 2017. That like you know time period where you're kind of between the years <laughs> so how did you so my biggest thing is I sign up for classes and then I start just like the judgmental thing like I'm like I'm not good at this right now and then I never ended up and I I also have trouble like you're not worth spending the time to learn this thing like mm -hmm. and I end up just not I, I don't want to say I'm quitting because I never started like <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I um I'm actually looking to see where where to stick them because I have some of my pieces from her. Um they might be in this folder because I still have some of the pieces that I made in that class, that first class. Um no, I don't see them right away. I like had them here really recently. I I've been trying to move things around and like keep better track of things. Ironically, I'm trying to find something right now and can't. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, my first abstract was not good. And I just really had to focus on like enjoying the process, enjoying the fact that I was making something and like whatnot. But I don't know. On one hand, I can say I really relate to having that inner critic. But on the other hand, I think, I think that I have a major ego because I just, from the beginning, I remember knowing that this is going to work out <laughs> just this Give whole time. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I mean, I really do relate to the inner critic and I don't want to say that I've never felt it because I have, and I have really wrestled with it a lot but I have always felt very certain that this was going to work out. Like when I started doing this, it felt right. It felt like it was supposed to be the way it is. And I just like really trust myself because I work really, really hard. And I guess I'm tooting my own horn for a minute. It's we live in a culture that kind of frowns upon you being confident, even though we want to say be confident. If you start saying confident things, you sound egotistical and conceited. Um, but like, I really do trust myself because I am a hard worker and I learn really well. If I like someone tells me information, I keep it, take it in. And I don't know. I've just always been good at learning things, even when it wasn't art, when I was like 
doing other subjects or other jobs or something. All the other jobs that I've had, I've always been promoted to manager. And like, I just always had a really good way of like finding my way to the top, even when it wasn't right. And so I felt like now that I found something that is definitely right, watch out. (laughs) See, that's the piece I'm missing is I grew up, I didn't actually know I wasn't like really dumb until I was like 25. And I remember jumping up from my cubicle desk, like the crappiest job ever. And like thinking like, oh my God, I'm not dumb. I just understood like this scientific theory, like, but no one should have to wait till they're like 25 to know they're not dumb. Like, and it's ingrained in my brain. Like you don't learn well, you don't learn well. That's something I have to like get rid of. Yeah. And I don't, I, I don't really know when it happened because I did not grow up around a lot of people who were telling me good things all the time either. Like, I don't, I don't feel like people really in, built that ego into me. I don't know where the ego came from because I spent a lot of time when I was a young person, like not feeling <laughs> that great about myself either. <laughs> but, um, but I just, as I've had confidence in myself, I have seen proof on the outside too, like getting into grad school, things that I never thought were possible. And then it happened and then it just reinforces my ego. (laughs) So you applied for grad school with like the most honest letter I've ever heard. Like it's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. And I, um, I got a scholarship from sending in a similar letter that I haven't shared with anybody, but I sent a letter because they have a scholarship that allows you to just ask if you think you need more money. And it's like, just tell us whatever you're comfortable telling us why you need more money. And I wrote them this letter about how I spend $800 a month on therapy and how that is really important for me and my well-being, but it's expensive. And they gave me a scholarship. It's just like, I just keep getting rewarded for being honest. I love that. Amazing world to live in. (laughs) That's a huge blessing. Like that. I feel like most of the world doesn't get rewarded for being honest. Like I know. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. And the letter I sent to get in was basically about that, where it was like, which I basically asked the committee, I was like, which story do you want to hear? Do you want to hear me twist my history to make it seem like I'm a prodigy that you should invest in because here I am and I'm amazing? Or should I tell you the truth, which is that I have failed a lot and that I am just really certain that this is the reason like me coming to this career and pursuing this career is the reason why everything else failed because this is the right path and the, all those other things were just stumbling blocks along the way. I was like, I basically asked them like, do you want a prodigy or do you want an underdog? Because I'm the underdog. Did you ask them in the letter or did you ask that beforehand before you submitted the letter? I asked them in the letter basically. Okay. Yeah. I put it in, I basically put it in the letter. I was like, I I don't know if you need me to like make myself sound more impressive than I am, but I'm hoping that you're interested in an underdog because I've got a lot of failure to tell you about. (laughs) What made you decide to do that? I just, as I was like figuring out what to write about, basically the, the statement of purpose that you were supposed to send in was like, why should you come to the school? And I was trying to think of like, um, 
the things that I was thinking of at first just seemed so silly. Like I, I wanted to be like, Hey, I built a business and I have a bunch of Instagram followers and it is all because I basically just decided to start telling people something that I convinced them to believe. <laughs> you know, like one day I was just like, I'm going to be an artist. And then i made it so <laughs> I was like that doesn't sound like the full story though because my full story is all about failure and how I have felt like awful and so many of my other past pursuits like when I went to college and I ended up flunking out right after I discovered my eating disorder because um, like I told you before I was such a control freak up to that point and then I kind of bounced in the other direction and be kind of became like a drug user and I was being really promiscuous back then and stuff. And I just like flunked out of school. And then all my jobs have been like that where I'll start at a job and I will work my way up and get promoted to manager. And then I've got to call out all the time because I'm depressed, but you don't want to tell your employer that you're depressed. So you make up the fact that you're sick and then they think that you're playing hooky because nobody can be sick that often. Yeah. And like, yeah, I just have like a long list of, jobs, schools, relationships where I just wasn't able to be my and since I wasn't able to be myself, which is someone with bipolar disorder who has extremes, I was like I didn't fit into the like it was like a square peg in a round hole or whatever. And um I just keep thinking about that story and for like a long time that story made me really upset is it just like proved how much like how I was garbage, absolute garbage. <laughs> but then I have recently in the past year through working with my therapist and stuff started kind of reframing that story to say, wow, you know, you had a lot of opportunities to just give up and you just never gave up. And I decided that that was the story that I really wanted to tell SCAD and that I didn't I didn't really feel in the mood to write some essay that made it seem like it was a lot more easy than it was. You know, I just like didn't feel like lying. <laughs> oh, really? Why not? <laughs> so when do you start school? I start this summer. I'm starting online classes so that I don't have to move yet because we still have our lease here in Charlotte. And we're trying not to break it. So I'm just going to start um, with one online class this summer. <laughs> dip my toe in the water and then maybe um in the fall go a little bit more all in <laughs> so it's um how far is that from you now um so savannah is i think it's like six hours from charlotte or something okay. it's it's definitely further south and yeah atlanta is six hours so savannah is probably about like probably more, I guess, because you'd have to take a different route. Mm. Um, but it's pretty far, it's far enough that we would want to move. For yeah. Sure. What does your husband do? Mm -hmm. He is, um, he's like me where he is like, well, he works for himself, but what he does is he gambles. Really? <laughs> yeah. So he's extremely, extremely gifted in like math and statistics so he does the thing where he like he gambles and uses probability 
to ensure that his bets will be successful. He's kind of like, I mean, everything that he does is legal. So using an, using the example of like when Rain Man um, and Rain Man, when they take um, Tom Cruise, like takes his brother to go count cards at the casino, <laughs> like counting cards is illegal. So that's not quite the like same thing as what I'm saying. Cause what my husband does is legal, but he does use like math and probability to make really informed, well guessed bets. And he makes a lot of money. <laughs> That's so interesting. I've never heard that before. <laughs> yeah, he's he's special. He's really special. <laughs> so I guess he could do whatever he does anywhere, too. So it's not like a big deal for him to go also. I was really curious if you were just going to go by yourself or if, like, you were both going to move. <laughs> no, we would both move for sure. And we have our dog, um, Frida, and we love her. She's like our baby. So the whole family, the whole pack would move. So I'm asking for a friend. Mm -hmm. I'm winking. So if someone wants to get into painting, but is still scared and has been scared for about a decade or so, um, what do you recommend they do to like, to become famous like you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that I just like, I really like to be blunt about such matters. Yes, please. Oh, I think there are enough people out there who take the like super, you know, um, maternal, like nurturing. No, give me, give me what you want to say. I don't need my, it. My blunt self who's just like, you know, it is going to suck. It's not going, it's not going to always feel great. And you just have to decide what painting means for you and whether it's worth it kind of sucking for (laughs) like the experience will sometimes suck and your art will sometimes suck. But if it's important enough to you, then the experience will not always suck and it will be worth it because your art will stop sucking if you do it long enough and stick with it long enough. So it's like with anything, um, you know, like when we were babies, we could only crawl for a little while And I think we are all really glad that we tried walking, even though it was really scary. If we didn't try walking at some point, we would all just still be crawling around. And that's a really simplified way of putting it. But I feel the same way about art where I feel like people who aren't, they don't feel ready to paint or something. I understand it, but to me it feels like crawling and that you just got to get up and walk (laughs) because you're not going to go anywhere until you start walking. So, as a new mother, mm-hmm. babies are fearless. Like, <laughs> like, it wasn't like, I'm scared to crawl. It was like, let me try jumping off this couch and see what's happening. <laughs> like, they're crazy. Mine's crazy. Mine is crazy. Like, but I will say they're resilient. Like, he bangs his head and then falls on his butt and then just gets back up again because, like, his brain is like, no, I want to be standing. Like, I want to be like my son. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think that could be something that, you know, part of what Picasso was saying when he was saying, you know, all children are artists. The trick is how to be co- like stay one when you grow up. And I think we usually think about that as meaning like, oh, someone who's like carefree with what they're making and very like in tune with the process and stuff. But it could also mean that like fearlessness of just and I think that is kind of what I would say, like 
with my blunt, not like nurturing tone is just like, you have to find a way to be fearless and it sucks. It always sucks. <laughs> but that's the way with everything. Like yeah. you really think about it, like, and then you get to the next phase where like, you're like, okay, I'm really great at drawing petunias, but like, what about like chrysanthemums? And then you suck again. And then I don't know. It's so hard. Being a grown up is so hard. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> yes. You continue to grow. Like I oftentimes have to remind myself to look at where I am now. And when I'm like sitting there hating a piece, I have to remember that I like totally just would be so grateful to be where I am now. If I were to check in with myself like two years ago, mm-hmm. two no, years ago, totally. me would me be like, what are you crazy? <laughs> and like me now has higher standards and stuff. And that I guess I think that the reason why I feel like I'm successful is because I have an insatiable appetite for growing and that I just like love to grow and I just accept everything that goes with growing, which is also like growing pains. <laughs> so I think just like always being dedicated to growing and keep practicing no matter what even when it sucks because it's going to suck you have to just admit it's going to suck yeah (laughs) so ultimate I have like a five part like I'm thinking of this question it kind of looks like a tree okay like um I'm curious like what your dream has been right now like as far as like painting and mental health I guess I have advocacy Mm -hmm. (laughs) and like um, cause I know you intertwine those. So I'm curious, like you've had a lot of collaborations lately. I'm curious if like people seek you out, if you're fine, if you're seeking out other organizations or like what your ultimate goal has been before you mm-hmm. apply for school. Cause I'm assuming that's a different goal. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. School for me is all about perfecting the craft. I'm not really thinking about it as like a professional move, but, um, anyway, yeah. So like, my my dreams are I actually really really want to have an artist collective where it's like I see myself in the next five years or so sharing a studio space with three other artists who are just as dedicated to their craft and like hungry for it as I am and we enjoy each other's company for being able to have like, you know, that person you can bounce ideas off of, but we're also, so we're interdependent, but we also are independent and don't like really need to lean on each other either. So you lean when it's good, but you don't need it really. Like um, there's some independence involved and we would be able to have uh, shows like open up our studio space to the public for people to come in like on Friday nights or something. And, um, maybe we would be able to have like a space for a resident artist where we could have artists and residents come and it would just be like, you know, if you study art history and you hear about how the impressionists, like a lot of them kind of were together in one class and they would all like go out. Well, not always, but in the early days they would be at the salons together. They would go out to the park to paint together. They would like share studio spaces together. I really love that. I want to be a part of something like that. (laughs) And I really, I am seeking out collaborations with like-minded businesses and stuff. Like recently I did a collaboration with HoneyBook. I saw that. 
the Rising Tide Society. And that was amazing. Like that was really like-minded. We both had, um, we were invested in the same message and in the same goals and we collaborated and that was wonderful. I am not seeking collaborations with companies like marketing agencies or things like that. Um, so I am like, I, I feel a lot more picky about my collaborations now than I used to be. I'm very sick about like what's, what is the point of the collaboration? And if the point is, oh, well, exposure, then that's not good enough for me. It has to be like for a reason, such as, you know, mental health awareness. That was great. So businesses and companies like that, I would love to collaborate with, like to write love on her arms, Mm -hmm. uh, Nita, NAMI, like all these mental health um, advocacy things. Right now I'm collaborating with Everyday Health and they're kind of like, um, they're doing this mental health campaign this month as well. And I'm sending in a painting along with a couple of other artists are sending in a painting and they're going to have an event that um, helps, you know, like the goal is to spread awareness about mental wellness and how important resilience is in the face of that. So I'm assuming like, I'm not sure how like, Rising Tide Honeybook found you, but they found you and they're like, we'd like to commission you to make these specific pieces of art. Is that how that kind of thing works? Or again, they're all, they are all there. I saw no. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. I, um, so some collaborations that I do come to me and that's great, but honestly, the majority of everything that I've done that sounds remotely impressive happened because I asked for it. <laughs> And that's something that people don't understand. It's something that I really want people to understand is that nobody asks for anything. And so when you ask for something, you already stand out. (laughs) And so like Honeybook and Rising Tide Society, um, I had a connection with them because I was one of the winners for 20 on the Rise last year, um, which is like an award that they do each year where they recognize 20 20 individuals in five different industries who they believe are like on the rise and are people you should look out for because they're doing really cool things. And so that was a really big honor for me. And so I knew that I had that connection and I actually reached out to them to pitch them a mural. I wanted to make a mural in their um, headquarters, which is in San Francisco. And they responded back and were like, Hey, we're, we're not actually like, thinking of a mural for a collaboration, we were actually thinking of you for something else. Um, so it's like you reach out to somebody and oftentimes floating a very specific idea is a good choice to make. Like when you reach out to someone and just say, I vaguely sort of want to collaborate with you. Like you're not giving them anything to go off of. Well, and that implies, right. and I think that implies that you're more after exposure than you are like doing anything concrete. And, um, so anyway, I like had a very specific idea. I wanted a mural and then they are able to respond to you and say, Oh, okay, well you pitched this one visual thing and we're not really feeling that, but we are feeling this other visual thing. What do you think about that? Um, so yeah, most of the opportunities that I've had, I pitched myself. That's awesome. I'm so glad Mm -hmm. I asked this question. (laughs) Yeah. You just got to pitch like, 
pitch it yourself. Like, did you pitch your book? I feel like you probably pitched your book. I pitched my book because the new book, I actually pitched my old book and I, and I got rejected, I think from 13 publishers. And then I got rejected from three agents Mm-hmm. And then I thought I pitched my book and they bought it, but they want, they actually thought they bought a different book, which is the new book. <laughs> time where like we were on the wrong page, but I really like the end result. Like it, it, I think you have to go in, which is really hard for me, go in thinking like it's going to be different than I expect. Mm-hmm. Like to try and, cause you have a very con like if you're like, no, I want to do a mural, then you might not be as open to like whatever they suggest instead. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a great idea to have like an idea of what you want, something specific so that they know that you're serious and that you've thought about it, but be open to mm-hmm. a collaboration, like a true collaboration. That is super cool. And I already mm-hmm. forgot my other question. So that's cool too. <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to tell people where they can find you online? Yeah, that's great. I am the most active on Instagram and at, I, on Instagram, I'm at Taylor Lee Paints. But I also have a website, and that's TaylorLeePaints.com because Taylor Lee is too common of a name, so I kind of had to had to keep the the paints part <laughs> to do, like make myself stand out. And um, I'm working on revising my web- website, trying to get my blog started back up. I'm, I'm trying, like I said at the beginning of um, this call I was talking to you. I don't know whether we were recording yet, but I used to try to do like so many different things because I was scared of missing out. Mm-hmm. So in the last year, I really kind of pulled back on a lot so that I could just focus on very specific things. And I think I'm, I'm ready to reopen my blog because I have more specific ideas about what I actually want to do as opposed to before it was kind of a, a smorgasbord. <laughs> Totally and not in a good way yeah what are some of the things that you thought you wanted to do that you don't actually want to do when you really think about it I thought that I really really wanted to teach people how to be um, successful in business and I just don't (laughs) (laughs) I just don't and that's not because I'm withholding it's not because I don't want to share my secrets that's not it at all it's just that um selfishly I want to be the artist and so if I built this career like teaching people how to be a successful artist and I spent all of my time teaching and none of the time being a successful artist it'd be kind of like a pyramid scheme and I've actually seen a lot of people who actually are doing that where they're teaching more than they're selling interesting and and, you know that might be what they prefer but I personally want to actually paint. I don't want just painting to be like the B, you know, if you're like, I'm A and I'm B. I don't want painting to be B. I want painting to be A. (laughs) I think painting should be like the asterisk before the A. (laughs) Yeah, like I am painting no matter what. And I just, yeah, I really thought, I I think I just recognize the market because there is definitely a market for teaching people how to be like a successful business person as an artist specifically. But it's a little bit of a market that people are taking advantage of in a bad way. And I didn't want to be one of those people who was doing that. It's hard because no matter, I feel like in every person, like just like with therapy, like everyone's Mm -hmm. going to tell you something that's the similar, but completely different. 
yeah. to like, I don't know. It's hard. It's also hard. Like it's, it's hard seeing a market for something and knowing how to make a career versus doing what you know you should be doing. That's not necessarily as lucrative. Yeah. It's really hard. Like I've always struggled with like, where do I fit? Like, okay. I, I know clearly like what my purpose in life is like various ways that I'm supposed to be doing this purpose, but this way makes money. Like, <laughs> Yes. It is so tempting to make the money. And I think that's why I like, I think that is the reason I would want to teach that. And that's not the right reason mm-hmm. for me anyway, for other people, it's enough reason, but to me, that just doesn't light me on fire. And I'm exactly the type of person who, if something is not interesting to me, I drop it. And yep. I don't want to have all these people signed up for something that I just drop, you know? That would probably be a bad idea. It would be bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really enjoyed talking to you. And this has been such a good episode. I know, like, our listeners are going to, like, love it so much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. If you liked the episode, please subscribe or even better, leave a review. It makes iTunes really happy and hopefully makes them share this podcast with other people, which would make me really happy. If you have any ideas for topics to cover or for people you'd like me to interview, please email me. My email address is in the show notes. And thank you again. Have a great day.